Heavenly Father, I am feeling weak this morning. (laughs) I tremble before You in light of this text and what it really means as creatures before You that we would stand and begin to express Your will to our fellow brothers and sisters or creatures who all stand before You in light of eternity. Designed and made by You, fashioned by Your hands, spoken into existence, seated in a spinning ball going around a huge ball of fire at this very moment. We don't fly away, but we are fixed because of Your gracious hand upholding all things by the power of Your Word. Lord, I pray that we would begin to have a greater picture and understanding of what that relationship look like, looks like to be a creature made by a Creator and have all things held together by You. Help me in my weakness today, Lord, as I work through this text together with Your church. In Jesus' name, Amen. Guys, I am tired. I don't know about you, but that wind last night was something else. As uh, you had mentioned, in prayer today, Matt, that uh, it definitely was an expression of the Lord's power, and it beat against our house all night. You see these wonderful bags under my eyes? That is why. Man, I am exhausted right now, guys. I am having a hard time concentrating, so bear with me in my weakness. Um, but first and foremost, before we get, get into the, the text, I want to encourage you guys, of course, uh, to continue reading through it. Uh, for those have, I'm sure, and positive that in reading and working through this text, is it really that bad already? That in reading the, through this text, um, that uh, things will start to pop out to you that maybe haven't before. Um, that it would be a blessing to you um, as we work through together that it would be sown into your hearts. Um, Forgive me as I'm turning. I was uh, corrected last week. Um, I need to find it now. I don't know where it went. I was corrected last week uh, in terms of my understanding of the earth uh, and its rotation. And I wanted to make sure that I conveyed that uh, properly to you guys. Um, I'm looking for it. Gosh, I lost my... Oh, there it is. Okay. Uh, Dear Brother Brian made sure that he provided me a correction. And I wanted to make sure that I provided accurate uh, uh, stats. Um, So hear hear this. Uh, The geo-orbital data as of 2022, uh, in terms of the perihelion, which is to say the point of orbit at which the Earth is closest to the Sun, uh, and the aphelion, which is the the point that's furthest away from the Sun, uh, the the perihelion is 91,406 1,842 miles away at its closest point to the sun. The aphelion, the furthest point, is uh, 94,509,598 miles away from the sun, giving a variance of 3,102,756 miles. And the Earth spins at a rate closest to the equator, nearest to the equator, at 1,000 miles per hour, And at the same time, in its elliptical orbit around the sun is moving at 66,000 miles per hour. Thank you, Brian, for that correction. I wanted to make sure um, that we made that clear. That should terrify you, right? I mean, that should really put things in a a check when when we come to think about uh, who we are and what we are. Here we are, these mere minuscule beings on this incredible object 
floating in what we don't know what it is really, space, suspended in some way or not. I, I don't know exactly what space is. Um, and moving at an incredible rate of speed while we're spinning and we're wobbling while we're spinning around this huge ball of fire. I just wanted to make that clear for, for purposes of um, expressing how in awe we ought to be of God's creative power, let alone the wind beating on our houses and keeping us up all night. So again, let's review. So forgive me. I want to make sure that we give accurate data, like when we're up here, um, and expressing that clearly. And if that's wrong, please feel free to fact check me. I'll apologize next week, okay, uh, for anything that I get wrong today. Um, let's again re-examine before we move into the text. What is the theme of the book? What is the theme of this book? The theme of the book is really life under the sun, where vanity reigns amid two groups of people, God-fears and the wicked. So this book of wisdom has wisdom that is being conveyed to these two groups of people. It has a way of uh, bringing clarity to the believer and a call to repentance to the unbeliever. And we could really say even a call of repentance to the believer. It's a tool of sanctification in one sense for the believer. And it is a call to repentance to turn to the Creator, the one who reigns over all. Yet, both groups of people are subject to vanity, right? As uh, the Scriptures say that God has subjected the created order to futility. We, we both live in a really futile, vain existence. The first uh, break in chapters 1 through 2, as, we, as we're moving through, we'll close out chapter 1 today, hopefully, is our creaturely limitations, right? Man is powerless, really, to prescribe meaning or enjoy anything. This really sets up the tone for the rest of the book. This is the premise of the book. The thesis is all is vain. And man as a creature, a mere creature, is powerless to ascribe or prescribe meaning or enjoy anything. Uh, in the progressive chapters, chapters 3 through 5, as we move towards this, just keep this in mind, that in light of these creaturely limitations, we need to understand the Creator's sovereignty. That everything is the Creator's and as well as beyond the limit of our understanding or comprehension, um, we cannot we can apprehend certain things based on what God has revealed about Himself to us in His Word, but we certainly cannot have a comprehensive knowledge of God. We are limited, and we're limited in many ways. We're limited um, by our own subjective experience. We're limited to our own mindset, the limitations of the, the, your mind's capacity to think and process. Um, you're limited in terms of your physicality. Um, you're limited in a number of ways. You're limited to time. You're limited to your, your time in terms of history, where you are in your time, place, and habitation, as Paul says in Acts 17. There are tons of limitations around us. We know that, we're familiar with that, but we need to be clear in terms of our, our limitations as it relates to the Creator, right? As our limitations relate to the Creator. And then in chapter 6, uh, through 8, uh, ending in verse 15 in chapter 8, uh, we are controlled. Uh, God controls and, and uh, empowers joy. The sovereign creator has control over all things, including uh, your ability to enjoy things and experience joy. And this vanity under the sun can only be meaningful and enjoyed under the sun by those who fear God. So keep that into perspective. Yes, there is temporal pleasure in certain things, but it is really meaningless in the end. 
unless perspective is in its proper place, unless there's a true fear of God that exists. We're going to discuss more of that today. And then finally, the uh, Solomon seeks to resolve conflicts in, in chapter 8, verse 16, through the end of the book in 12, 14. Uh, trying to give, uh, the, trying to solidify that a proper perspective changes everything. So let's let's dive into Ecclesiastes one verse twelve. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an happy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this is also a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much, much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. All right, so what does this mean? Let's just start with the first passage, okay? Uh, 12 through 14, verses 12 through 14. Let's try to work through this understanding. Uh, he, the preacher, the, the Koheleth, right, the, the assembler, the gatherer, is trying to explain something to the people of Israel. Remember, he is assembling and gathering a group of people, and I believe this was given to Israel. Um, he was a son of David. He was a king in Jerusalem, as it says in Ecclesiastes 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, and that is traditionally to be understood as Solomon. King Solomon, as it says in 1 Kings 4.1, was king over all of Israel, and he ruled from Jerusalem. One would be hard-pressed, I don't care how much linguistic work you do. You're going to tangle yourself up in a linguistic work, and I encourage you to study this out. Um, there are many different views on who the actual preacher is. There are many views on, there's an, are there two voices, a narrator and the preacher, right? The narrator seeks to correct or to help guide and bring to proper conclusions at the very end what the preacher was working through and hashing out. So you have two voices view. You have a, a perspective based on certain uh, language used in uh, Ecclesiastes that would have been foreign, they say, the linguistic experts say, to uh, Solomon's period. He wouldn't have used those, those types of words or used those kinds of phrases. That didn't come until much later. I disagree with that uh, for, for a number of reasons. One, the assembler, the preacher, describes himself as a son of David, a king in Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't, that's not enough, but he did rule from Jerusalem, right? Uh, Solomon also built a temple to God. And he was wise above everyone, as he shares later. I was given wisdom, right? He says, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Who else, as we heard in our Scripture reading this morning, was granted wisdom that far surpassed all who were before him and after him? Who would, who would have described himself that way? Now those argue in, uh, in the scholastic circles that, well, Solomon would have come right out and said it was him. Just like in the Proverbs, Proverbs 1, for, for example, is a proverb of Solomon. That's not necessarily true. I, do, I believe he's doing it for um, teaching purposes. 
He's not ascribing his name to it. He's just saying, this, I am the teacher. Well, he was known to be the teacher of all Israel. The majority of the wisdom writings were written by him. And so, to me, it's not far-fetched to think that the son of David, the king over Israel, who ruled from Jerusalem, who was wise above everyone else that before him and after him, and he, he had experiences that were far surpassing any other king of Israel, even his own father of the time. It's not far-fetched to believe that this man is King Solomon, the very one who experienced these things, and is trying to lead us in such a way to avoid these things in a very similar way that the Proverbs, particularly 1-8, through eight, is structured. It starts with, my son. Like, listen to me. Hear me out on this stuff. Avoid these things, do these things. Right? Trying to lead his child in the way of wisdom. Now think about it. Solomon built a temple for God and it surpassed. It was unsurpassed in history and the ark rested there and God dwelled among his people during Solomon's time. Right? Solomon asked the Lord for wisdom and it was granted to him. It pleased the Lord's heart. He wanted to govern his people wisely. He wanted to rule justly. He wanted to discern between good and evil as it says in 1 Kings 3.9. In 1 Kings 4, 29-34, it says this, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and the breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men. Wiser than Ethan. <laughs> Ethan the Ezrahite, and Haman, and Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. Those must have been pretty smart people or else the Scripture wouldn't have mentioned it. I don't even know who those people are. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. This dude was so smart. He was so wise. That, that wisdom, the renown of that wisdom went to all nations. Think about that. Very few people like that ever have existed in history, right? It says here he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. I counted those bad boys, 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. In 1 Kings 10, 1-10, it describes the Queen of Sheba's experience with Solomon. She sought him out to answer hard questions. And she was so taken back by it, it says that her breath was taken away that not only was he able to answer her hard questions, her challenges, but that in, in her experience, just being there with him, seeing uh, his kingdom, the way he reigned, all of the servants, the great feasts, that she was taken back and she hooked him up with like an insane amount of gold. It was like 125 talents or something like that. And I had to look that up. Uh, do you know how much a talent weighs? 75 pounds. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I'm hooking you up, man. You have the serious wisdom. Here's gold. A ton of it and a ton of other gifts that she gave him. Um, and carried that back. She carried that uh, back to Egypt with her and expanded his reputation. And even Jesus brings her up later when he's rebuking the Jews. You guys remember that? It says that, um, that the queen of Sheba will be judging you one day. And I tell you that one greater than Solomon is standing among you. Like, think about that. Jesus compares himself not only to Solomon, but he says that the Queen of Sheba is going to be the one judging this perverse and wicked nation. That's pretty insane. And now, if Solomon was the wisest man, we believe, biblically, that ever walked the earth, that 
you know, that wisdom that's understanding beyond measure and the breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. What was Jesus like? You can imagine what it was like to be in the presence of Jesus. So when, when the, the, the author of Ecclesiastes, the Kohelet, the preacher says that I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And he's a son of David. And he's a king in Jerusalem. It's pretty fair to deduce that this is likely Solomon. That is why it's traditionally accepted that way. And whatever the traditionalists or the, uh, the linguistic experts want to come up with, my, my encouragement to you is have fun with that. Uh, go ahead and study that to your heart's content. Uh, you'll find yourself drifting and wandering away from exactly what I believe the intention of the text is. And you will miss the point that I believe Solomon's trying to convey to us. So with that said, now that out of the way, let's work through the text together. So although, think about this, although Solomon had this incredible wisdom that he was endowed with by God, and God, it says that God even gave him treasures, even though he didn't ask for it. He gave him a 40-year rule and reign in Israel. Nothing was withheld from this man. He even says it. He goes, everything I desired, as we see in chapter 2, I went after it. I went after it with all the gusto I had within me. Right? Think about it. What was his conclusion at the end of this first point, right, in verses 12 through 14? Take a look. What does he say? What does he say? He says, uh, it is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. <laughs> I've seen everything that is under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What does he mean by that? Then he goes on to say, what is crooked can't be made straight, and what is lacking can't even be counted. I mean, talk about the bankruptcy that he's observing. Here's a man who has everything, all of the endowed power of wisdom to pursue everything and to discover what it is to find meaning in anything, and he can't. He says, he goes on to say, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this is also a but striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So not only what we discovered last week, where man's work, anything he puts his hands to is really meaningless. In the end, it's just dust in the wind, as he'll go on to say later. It's chasing after the wind. It's sorrowful. But then to pursue wisdom and to try to go between the scope of, of madness and folly, right? Of, of uh, you know, the difference between what is actual true wisdom and then what is madness and folly. Like, that's a big spectrum. I want to know it all. I don't want to pursue it with all of the power that God has given me to, to do so. He result, what is it? It's just a striving after the wind. Why? Because in the end of it all, the wiser you are, the more vexed you are, and the more sorrowful you are. I know personally, I've experienced that in my own life. The more you send, you know, you pursue after things, you're even reading scripture. Think about things that we struggle with in terms of our creaturely limitations. What kind of wisdom would we pursue that would result in vexation, and increased sorrow. Well, I can tell you this right now. Some of the most craziest infighting among Christians deals with what? The sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God as it relates to salvation. The sovereignty of, uh, of God as it relates to control of all things. This unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. This meaninglessness, this vanity of our lives. The fleeting pleasures of sin. The harder you go into trying to understand it, you're trying to get into the mind of God, and the more you do this one thing called, like, kids love this, right? Kids, you ready? Listen, you love to do this, huh? Watch. 
Watch them looking kids, ready? You ask mom and dad, why? Why? Why do we have to do that? Well, and what do most parents say? Because I am the sovereign ruler over all things in this household. That's not the way they respond, right? <laughs> Amen. It's, no, it's, think about it. What, what do most parents say? They, they, they want to have your best interest in mind. They set boundaries for a particular reason. And it's not always up to you to question exactly why I set those rules and guidelines. Uh, maybe I might share with you why that might be the case. But I'm not always, I don't necessarily have to tell you why. And you guys love that, huh? When mom and dad says, no, no, don't worry about it. Don't ask why. Kids love that, huh? That's the, that's the best, huh? When mom and dad respond that way, huh? And they're like, no, we're not telling you why. We're not telling you why we made those rules. We're not telling you why we took that away from you. We're not telling you why you're grounded. We're not telling you why. And we're not going to tell you when that ends. We just, just listen to us. And maybe one day, you know, as you build trust and you continue to, to, to work things out and you show and demonstrate that you can be trusted, then maybe we'll give that back. But until then, don't ask why ever again. Kids love that, huh? That's like the best. We do that with God all the time. The more wisdom we seek to pursue, the more we try to get into the mind of God, the more vexed and the more sorrowful we become in some cases. I'm sure everyone in this room has experienced that in some way. Another example of that would be, think about it, anybody done apologetics out there? Anybody contended for the faith? Stood in, you know, in, in, against the opposition and had to give an answer for the hope that lied within you? Have you ever struggled with not having an answer? Or maybe the, the answer that you were providing was insufficient. And you just was try, you're just trying to convince this person that God exists. <laughs> and that the Bible is His Word. And you're just trying to make sense of it all. And it's just never good enough. And then you go to a book and you say, oh, this author's trusted, so I'm going to go read through this. I'm going to read a little bit on the sovereignty of God. I'm going to read on some proofs for God's existence and for you know, the support that God, the, the Bible is actually God's Word. It's not just man-made. And I'm just going to dig in harder. And then I'm going to look for these philosophical arguments. I'm going to push harder uh, into reading these books. That's a trusted author. This is a trusted author. And I'm just going to read, 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 read. And if you come to the end of it going, that just made more questions pop into my head. That didn't answer anything. Man, I'm struggling more than I did... When I, before I started into this whole adventure. And now my heart's vexed. And now in some cases, maybe I'm doubting what I believed before. Now I'm really struggling. Now I don't know where to find the answers. Anybody experience that? I certainly have. And then you come to, to learn as you study things out, right? And you work hard in your studies. You go to school. Anybody here uh, have a bachelor's degree? Anybody here have a master's degree? Anybody here have a PhD? No PhDs. We'll work on that. Right? At the end of it all, these PhDs, they're like, what have I done with my life? You know who a good example of that is? Thomas Aquinas. Do you guys know the, the, uh, the biography of Thomas Aquinas, like his, a brief understanding of like his life and what ended up happening towards the end? The man wrote an incredible, crazy tomes. The Summa Theologiae. An amazing tome. This insane work where you just working through and trying to work through all these questions. And he's the kind of man that I'm thinking of, like the, the achievements of this man's mind in his life. And man, what he went after and the questions he was seeking to answer and the stuff he was wrestling with, whether we agree with him or not, was incredible. You have to give credit where credit's due. The dude was going after it with everything in him. If you know his story, uh, he didn't finish the Summa Theology. He didn't finish it. You guys know what happened? 
He ended up closing up and goes, what a complete waste of time. And then he died like a few years later. You look at a man and you're like, wow, guys, look, at, look up his works. They're incredible in what he did in a short period of time at a very young age even. Brilliant man. I don't agree with everything he, he teaches. So don't take that as like I'm giving full license, like, oh, Jeremy backs everything Thomas Aquinas says. No. I'm looking purely at the brilliance of the man and what he went after and how he went after it and to the degree he went after it and how hard he worked and what he wrote was incredible. And at the end of his life said that was a complete waste of time. He had this enlightenment at the end of his life that supposedly changed everything about what he believed and then died. (laughs) Now, that's one way to spend your life. But think about it. What, what meaning was stripped away from him that he invested an entire lifetime in and thought, thought at the very end it was meaningless, that it was vexing? Those answers can't be, those problems can't be solved. There are no answers for them. And everything I just devoted all of my time and energy to in was a complete waste of time. People who've gone through school have felt that way, I guarantee you. Some of your bachelor's degrees decided to do it like in some specified thing. And then that specified thing becomes antiquated by the time you get your degree or within a few years. You're like, what have I done with my time? I worked so hard to get that degree. Or maybe you got a master's degree. Do you know how many theology students are out there that don't actually use their theology degree? I can think of one. I have a very close friend who went all the way through. Listen, this man, brilliant. Very close friend of mine. Brilliant. Uh, gets, a, gets a theology degree. Then goes on to master's seminary. Gets a master's degree in, in, in divinity. He goes in to get his PhD in textual criticism, gets all the way into, te- I mean, he's writing his thesis. And he went, guess I'm going to go be a financial advisor now. Whoa, what a waste of time. And he'll be the first to tell you that was a complete waste of time. I can't believe I did that with all those years of my life. I almost ruined my marriage as I was pursuing my master's and PhD. And in the end of it all, nothing. He doesn't even use it. Now, we could say that there are some disciplines that you gain from doing that sort of academic work, of course. Some things are redeemable, but to him, it was a complete waste of his time. We know scientists who have spent their entire life's work invested in a theory that in the end, just bunk. Now, some would say, well, that's just good science. That's how it all works out. No, no, no. They get all this renown. They get all this acclaim. They're, they're you know, well-known. They acquire wealth from it. And then in the end, they're like, what have I just done? I just spent my whole life being debunked in the very end of it all. Or they spend their whole life doing that and pursuing that, living a lie, like Charles Darwin, gaining uh, renown from it and acclaim, only to die and return to the earth and have to face the living God in the end of it all. Imagine the conversation between him and the Lord on the damage and the destruction that man has created in his lifetime of work what he was devoted to. So think about that. That's what Solomon is trying to get through to us. So what am I saying here? Am I saying don't go to school anymore? No. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's all worthless. Worthless, worthless, right? Chasing after the wind? In some cases, yes. It absolutely is. But in some cases, not. For the wicked, remember there are two groups of people here. For the wicked, it is a complete waste of time. because, And they should be told that, by the way. As an apologetic approach, they should be told, hey, by the way, you're completely wasting your time. You're not going to give glory and honor to the Lord. You're not going to worship Him. By the way, this is all going to be chaff for you. You're going to, you're going to experience vexation, all of sorrow, and it's going to be meaningless in the end. And you're going to try to drown that with pleasures. 
Pleasures that will, by the way, never bring you joy. You'll spend your whole life devoted to something that in the end doesn't really matter in light of the grand scheme of things. But for the God-fearing, they can find great joy in this vexation of study. They can find great joy in the sorrows of life even. They can find great joy in the vanity of it all. In their meaningless time on this earth. How is that that the case? Think about it. The only way that that's possible is through understanding that we serve and worship a God that that makes everything meaningful. If you divorce yourself from God and His will, then you are truly chasing after meaning on your own. You're trying to make it up on your own. And then what you end up discovering at the very end of it all is it's meaningless, right? We can't escape, essentially, what God has established. And every time we try to, like our first parents, what do we end up discovering? Everything's an unhappy business. All is vain. It's striving after the wind. There's unmeasurable deficiency in it all. And it's full of disappointment. We even experience that as believers. Why? Because we lose track. Later, Solomon will, will, will conclude this. Ecclesiastes 3, 14-15. He'll say, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken away from it. God has done it. So that people fear before Him. That which is has already been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. In, seven, in uh, chapter 7, verse 13, He says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? He repeats it again. We've heard that. Oh, we, you hear those things all throughout Scripture, right? Um, if God closes the door, can anyone open it? We, uh, Jonathan brought this up last week. What God has closed, can anyone open it? No. What God has opened, can anyone close it? No. Think of God's response to Job. Hey, where were you when I made all these things? Are you the one that tells the wind and the, you know, and the, and the waves? The wind, please, sometimes. But can we? Can we? Could I get out and rebuke the wind? on my porch and say, this is where you must stop. I'm trying to get some rest tonight. Right? No. We can't. It'll beat against us harder probably. Lord will humble us. Knock us over. Right? No, you cannot. You cannot rebuke the waves and the wind like Jesus did on the boat with the disciples. It won't listen to you. And that's what God tells Job. Hey, when I created everything, I said, this is, here you are, ocean, and this is where your proud waves must stop and the land continues here. And I set everything in motion and I spoke it all into existence and nothing can change that. Nothing. Nothing can stop that. And if God makes something crooked, like uh, Grant brought up this morning, and bro, thank you so much for filling uh, for Jonathan while he's out filling the pulpit for Breathe. Appreciate you, bro. That was great. Um, God makes earthquakes, tsunamis, horrible hurricanes in Florida, and on and on and on. It's the same God, same meanie head. Right of the Old Testament, some people think. But God, what God makes crooked, no one can make straight. If God has set and subjected the created order to futility, well then, futility we will experience. And He's done it specifically, why did Solomon say? So that we would fear Him. So then why would Solomon, as the wisest man in history, <laughs> fail so miserably and do so with such fierce intensity? That's a question that I've had, like I've thought about a lot, and I know you guys have asked the same question. If you are listening to this book, like listening audibly, that's what I encourage you to do, it takes half an hour. You listen through it and you go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This dude had all the wisdom, super smart, God-fearing, God-honoring, 
in some ways, but if you read a little bit about his life story, his biography, uh, he gets in a lot of trouble, doesn't he? One of the first things he does is take a wife from Egypt as, a, as an agreement between he and Egypt to try to, to build a, a bridge between he and Egypt. Was that a good thing? Nope. That was a bad thing because he used it as a, as a political way to build a bridge between Egypt and Israel. Is that ever a good thing in the Bible? Never. He took a wife, n- never to take a wife from a foreign nation under the law. And he did it, though, politically. Well, it's just a political agreement, a contract between us. You know, we're trying to build, build the bonds around here, you know. That was the first mistake. And then what did he do for all his other wives that he took as political arrangements, conveniently, right? His sweet wives, his many wives. What did he do for them? Well, I want to honor them and love them and, you know, respect them and respect their, their, uh, their conscience and respect their worship. So I'm going to build high places for them. And they're going to worship their God, whoever they want in Israel. How'd that work out later for Israel? Oh, it was really tough. Israel went through a really tough time. Lots of periods of judgments. Horrible, wicked kings came as a result of that. And on and on. The history is horrifying. Solomon's 40 years. So although he's incredibly wise, he made really stupid decisions. Really stupid decisions. I like what Charles Bridges says from his work on an exposition of Ecclesiastes. He says, Instead of the fruitfulness of a long course of devotedness, all was sorrow and shame, with only a few last rays of the setting sun to brighten the thick cloud. <laughs> At the end of his life, he only had a what? He describes it as a few rays of sun, like brightening this thick, dark cloud. It's like, man, Solomon in all his glory and all his wisdom destroyed his life and lived a shameful life in the end of it all. So we should ask the question, how then does the gospel apply to this, this particular state? How can we use this, as I suggested earlier, as a platform to not only correct us and instruct our hearts to give us the proper perspective, but then also use this as a platform for the gospel? How would you use Ecclesiastes to share the gospel? Well, think about it. Let's ask this. Uh, We all have a tendency like Solomon, don't we? to fall into the same trap as our first parents in Genesis chapter 3. And what was that? It was, it was the trap of determining good and evil, meaning, meaningfulness, uh, value for ourselves. What did, what did it say of Eve that she, when she was looking at the tree and she beheld the tree, what did, what did it say? That it was good for making one wise, for acquiring knowledge. And it was also look, look delicious, right? In my words, Jeremy paraphrase version. It looked good to eat. And it was capable of making one wise. Well, in the end of it all, I don't believe that it was the fruit itself was intrinsically evil. I know I've shared that a number of times, but think about it. It's not the fruit. The trap is, you're reading, you're like, Lord, I know you said this, but I kind of really want to do this. (laughs) That seems fun. That really is tempting. I would really, maybe this would bring pleasure in my life. You know? And, you're, and you start mulling it over. What does James say? Where does it begin? It begins in the heart. Sin begins in the heart. And it bears, it's born there. And then it grows as it's festered and it's entertained. And then you start doing what? What do we all do? We've all done this. We're all guilty of this. We start, maybe if it just is this. And Lord's gracious. He'll forgive me. I'll repent. But man, I want to go after this. 
We start making justifying the reasons why we want to go after our own kind of, well, maybe let me figure it out. I've heard people say this. It just came up last week. They say, well, we wouldn't really know what good is unless we experienced evil. Think about that. I go, wow, man. I turn around using my handy Ecclesiastes guide, and I said, well, isn't that convenient? You just get to go be wicked, dude, you know, so you can know what good is, right? That's ridiculous. That's not how it was in the garden. Oh, the garden. <laughs> you know, they mock and they laugh. The garden. Yeah, it wasn't that way in the garden. No, Adam and Eve knew what good was and didn't have to experience evil to know what good was. We don't have to. It was in relationship to a back injury. Man, I would really appreciate my health. I appreciate, I've come to appreciate my health more because of my injury. I'm like, well, I can understand that. But man, wouldn't you really just have not wanted to be injured? Oh, I mean, I, got, I mean, look at your miserable. Well, I, I appreciate my health. I, I get that, but it would be really nice to just be healthy, not injured. Think about it. That's exactly what Solomon did as he was approaching this. He's like, let me go injure myself gravely to experience what it really means to fear God and obey his commands, to walk in wisdom. Isn't it crazy how we all somehow justify our sin that way? Well, let me see, you know, maybe it's not so bad on the other side of that sin. You know, I'm really attracted to this person, or I really would like that thing. Man, that thing is sweet. Maybe I'll go steal that thing. Um, ah, they didn't really need all that money anyway, so I'm going to take that money and I'm going to use it for myself. I really want to kill this person for doing this to me. That would make me feel great. I'm just going to just this one little white lie. Not a big deal. Just why? Maybe embellish a little bit. It's just embellishment, Lord. Not, not a lie. I'm just kind of expanding the story a little bit more. I want people to like me. <laughs> Maybe it's okay to have one billion wives and let them worship their own gods. And there's a ton of concubines at that too. Because, you know, that's, that's always nice to have on the side. That's what Solomon did. He justified his actions and said, I'm going to pursue this to learn. I'm going to go ahead and fatally wound myself and live in shame for the rest of my life just to come and tell you, hey guys, don't do that. <laughs> don't do like I did. How many parents are in this room right now? New ones, older ones, older ones, right? Even older. Think of this. We have all, we've heard this, so we've said this ourselves. We said, Kids, whatever you do, don't do what I did. I was a total idiot. And what do they respond with always, usually? Hey, you turned out fine. You turned out great. Look, you guys are walking with God now, man. You really understand what it means to fear God. And you're looking at them like, don't go down that path. Please, whatever you do, please, you will ruin yourself. Right? And they go, you're fine. You're looking great. And you're actually doing really well for yourself these days. Let me go experience those things. And then, you know, give me a chance to really experience life. Well, that's not life. That's death. It really is. It's death. It's death. Listen to kids. It's death. Don't go down that path. All parents would plead with you to not do the same stupid things that they did. It's not fun. It's death on the other end of that. Listen again to what... Charles says, I'm just quoting him twice today, I promise. No more quotes after this. He says, Far be it from us to deny the highly valuable pleasures of wisdom and knowledge. So it's not, we're not saying that we should completely deny and like go, oh, I'll just be a dummy then so I don't have to be vexed with sorrows. No, we're called to walk in wisdom, but God's wisdom. So we're not going to deny that there are pleasures of wisdom and knowledge. Remember, knowledge. Uh, wisdom is just knowledge applied or right knowledge applied rightly. 
in God's created order. Okay, And there is value to that. There is pleasures in that. But if we attempt their pursuit, as Solomon seems to have done, by making an idol of our gifts, that is, putting God out of his supremacy, we can only expect to add to our testimony to their disappointment. The more we know, the more we shall be decomposed of the conscious of the consciousness of ignorance, the covetousness of the, of the understanding, the disappointing results of favorite theories, the cloud that hangs over the brightest path of inquiry. All this places us further from happiness than the fool. Admitting, therefore, the high value of mere intellectual pleasures, their unsatisfying results are grief and sorrow. What is he saying? You pursue this apart from God in his proper place and you in yours? The end of it all is grief and sorrow. You won't have true pleasures in the knowledge that you try to pursue. And that is the knowledge of good and evil. It's the same exact um, devastation that Adam and Eve experienced. Every time we decide to walk apart from God's will, to do our own thing, begin to justify it, we experience the same grief and sorrow and devastating results. And by the way, because you're part of God's created order, that's inescapable. He's given you this thing called a conscience to bring this aware. And what do people do with their conscience as they continue to pursue their own will? Harden it, sear it, destroy it, to where eventually it's not warning them at all. So to the unbeliever we say, and to the believer we say, fear the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Truly fools. You are a foolish person if you don't listen to God. You are a foolish person if you don't listen to that conscience God has given you. Nope, nope, don't do that. Stop justifying it. You know you're justifying it. Stop. Turn. And walk in righteousness. It's a fool's errand to violate God's holy command. According to Proverbs 1.8. We must trust in God's Word to begin to, begin to attain knowledge and rightly apply it. Unless you, unless you commit the Lord's Word to your heart as the Psalter says in Psalm 119, that's what it's entirely about, that you will not have a, a light that guides your path. In His light, we see the light. Apart from it, you'll be destroyed. Apart from it, you'll be ruined. You'll have a seared conscience. I love what uh, Brother EZ told me one time. This has never gone away. Um, it was when we were um, in the men's school of ministry with Calvary Chapel. He sat us down and he just had this real brief conversation with us as we were getting unpacked into a house. We all lived in a house together. And he said, he goes, listen guys, I'm just going to give you this brief piece of advice. This, uh, this brotherly proverb. He said, um, do everything in your power to never live with regret. Do everything in your power to never live with regret. What is regret? Well, it's a sin-stained mind. Think about it. Think about how hilarious it is when we have important things to remember we can't, but yet somehow it's impossible to forget some of the sins that we've committed. It happens to me all the time. There's some really important stuff I should probably remember, and I can't like for the life of me, but yet these sins in my mind I cannot get rid of. Regret of sin burdens the heart. It's like a weight that drags us down. We all feel that. We all have experienced that. Imagine Solomon at the end of his life. The more he learned, the more he went deeper into, the more burdened he was with the stain of sin and regret. And sin ultimately enslaves us, right? But what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say about that? He said in Matthew eleven twenty through 30 he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened. I'll give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you're going to find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We all need to hear that. There are things that people walk with in their life who are dragging them down right now as believers and have not given it to the Lord. He promised you. That's a promise. It's really a command in a lot of ways. Right? Come to Him. Give it over to Him. His yoke is light. His burden is easy. You want to continue walking with those burdens your whole life? Or do you want to finally just go, oh, I need to give this up. It's dragged me down too much. This sin, I can't handle it. This regret, this sorrow, this pain, this grief, this disappointment never goes away. He says, come. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So then how can one laden with sin have a clear conscience before God? Because really, that's where it is, right? That's the issue that's at hand here. That's the nagging issue that constantly won't let us go. Constantly bearing us down. He says, apart from Christ, there is no possible way you can have a clear conscience before God. The blood of Christ, as the author of Hebrews says, must, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Dead works. That's exactly what Solomon's talking about in Ecclesiastes. These are dead works. Everything that you do is dead apart from Christ. Because apart from Him, we can do nothing. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we've been raised to newness of life, not by anything we can boast about, but it's by God's grace through faith. And that we've been created for good works, that we'd walk in them. Turn from the old, walk in newness of life. That is the command to both the believer and unbeliever. One of my favorite quotes from another friend, Proverbs from Friends, Todd Hoffman. He says, There is nothing more precious to me than a clear conscience it makes for a soft pillow at night. Listen to that. There's nothing more precious to me than a clear conscience. It makes for a soft pillow at night. Preserve that clear conscience before the living God. Preserve it. Don't live with regret. Don't make mistakes. Don't justify them. Repent and turn. Paul says before Felix in Acts 24.16, he says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. Think about what that means. I want to walk in God's will before God and men. I want to have great relationships with my fellow man. I want to encourage them and prod them in the faith. I don't want to distract or destroy their relationship with Christ. I want to draw people to Christ in wisdom. I want to walk before Him with a clear conscience. We must... As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.9, exhorting leaders, so especially leaders, but think about it, this is, this is true for all Christians. We have to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. We are called to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. If you don't understand that, let's have a talk afterwards during the, the love feast. What does it mean to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience? We must serve, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.3, with a clear conscience. We must work not to violate, as Grant said this morning, not to violate or bind up, imprison the consciences of others with our own convictions, binding their conscience with laws of men. Right? And finally, in Hebrews 13.18, the author says, we must pray for ourselves and others to be, quoting him, sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act holy in all things before the Lord. That should be forever on our mind and before us.
So with that, let's close our time in prayer. Please bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that we can come to You with our deep burdens, our weariness, our sorrow of knowledge vainly pursued, of wisdom vainly pursued, foolishly, that we would divorce ourselves from Your wisdom that You have given to us as a father to a child crying out to us, don't do that. Don't go that way. Let Solomon's example be for us. One that we can learn from so that we don't have to do this ourselves. The wisest man became the greatest fool before our very eyes and wants to share with deep pain and regret and sorrow and grief of what that really looked like. I pray that we'd have a clear conscience before You today, Lord, that for those in this room that might be struggling with burdened consciences, Lord, that they would cast their lives, their hearts before You. Cast themselves upon You for Your yoke is light, Your burden is easy. That You would give them that conscience that is so precious. One that we can live without regret. One that we can lay our head on a pillow at night and rejoice and treasure the beauty of a clear conscience before You and sleep well. We pray that we pursue holiness in life knowing that that will bring our greatest pleasure and greatest joy for that is the purpose we've been created for. And pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.